0: Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, Golf Australia Magazine's continuing search for an answer to that unanswerable question, why do people get hooked on this infuriating game? My name's Rod Murray, and as regular listeners know, I'm your guide on these journeys into the psyche of golfers, those people for whom the game is more than just recreation or a way to get away from the stresses of daily life, but has become instead an integral part of their very being. If you're listening to this podcast, it may well be that you fall into this category yourself. But fear not, you are not alone. The affliction of golf doesn't play favourites. It affects in equal measure if not number, men and women, young and old, the talented and the truly hopeless. And while it may manifest in different ways for different individuals, the core sickness is the same, an inability to stop thinking about golf. Now, just as golf doesn't play favourites by gender or age, it also doesn't discriminate by geography. From Argentina to Australia and America to South Africa, the game is truly an international one. It's this last part of the world that we'll travel to today when we meet one of South Africa's favourite golfing sons. Dale Hayes doesn't have the profile or resume of Gary Player and Ernie Ells, but anybody who's watched the swing of European tour events that passes through South Africa in the early part of every year – will be more than familiar with his voice. What many, me included, might not know is just what a phenom Hayes was considered as a teenager. In 1971, he became the youngest winner in European tour history when he captured the Spanish Open at just 18 years and 290 days old. Remarkably, that record stood for 38 years, though, sadly, in many ways, Hayes' own playing career had a lifespan of just a decade. What happened in those 10 years between the euphoria of that victory and Hayes returning to his homeland to run the family golf course, well, apartheid for one, and a bunch of other stuff as well, which I hope you find as interesting to listen to as I did in this chat with Dale Hayes.
1: It's terrific to to be hearing your voice. Uh, you know, Obviously, I follow you on the on social media, so it's good to hear your voice.
0: You are in the minority, but it's good that there's a few of you out there, Dale. So <laughs> thank you for... Uh, <laughs> for doing that the podcast is called the thing about golf and it's an interesting question to ponder i guess particularly for somebody who's been in and around the game at so many different levels as you have so i'm going to ask you i've changed the question a little bit i'm going to ask you to finish this sentence for me for dale hayes the thing about golf is
1: everybody can play it you can play it in the most beautiful places And you could play
0: it with the nicest people. Hmm. It's uh, When I ask that question, particularly of professionals, it always strikes me that, and I've had a range of different answers from the extraordinarily deep to the very simple, but for people who've been around the game their whole lives, I imagine the thing about golf changes over time from when you first take it up to then playing on the world stage as you did, and we'll discuss some of your feats in international golf over time. Uh, the thing about golf, I assume, changes during all of those periods.
1: Absolutely. You know, uh, I, I grew up on a golf course because my, my father was the head professional at a golf club. So I grew up right on the fourth tee of our golf course. And, uh, um, you know, all I wanted to do in those days was following my my oldest brother's footsteps. My oldest brother was a professional golfer. In fact, he won the Australian Amateur.
0: He did. I'm going to ask Um, you about that shortly, yes. And,
1: uh, you know, I wanted to follow in his footsteps. I wanted to to be a professional golfer. I wanted to play on the turn. I mean, that was from the time I was five or six years old. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's all I thought about in those days. You know, I, I never thought about the real game. Mm-hmm. which is the game that is played by 50 million people mm-hmm. not by just a few thousand which is the tours of the world mm-hmm. so you know in the, i would say probably for the first 30 years of my life the tours were my life and the tours were what i thought about in golf but you know I always because i grew up at a golf course i always had a uh, a soft spot for the other side of golf mm-hmm. and you know over certainly for the last you know, close to 40 years. That has been my life, is the other side of golf, trying to get as many people to play this wonderful game, trying to, you know, I, I we go around to different golf clubs and do different things and, you know, just try and make the game more fun for more people. Yeah,
0: we're, we're quite evangelical, us golf nuts, aren't we? We believe everybody should have the joy of golf in their lives. We can be, I'm sure, quite painful for the non-golfers from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> Dale, I wanted, as I do, this is how I do my research. If I'm going to speak to somebody that I don't know enough about, I do a little bit of Googling. I go to Wikipedia, and then I ring Mike Clayton because Mike Clayton <laughs> knows everything about golf. And I'm going to read to you his response to me. I sent him a text, actually. I said, I'm chatting with Dale Hayes tomorrow. What should I ask him? And he said, he won at 18 in Europe. He played here in 71, I think, here being Australian. Manly in the Dunlop, and I assume Royal Hull in the Australian Open. Brother John won the 1963 Australian amateur. Father was a club pro and good player. I think he won the Order of Merit in Europe in 75 with Shearer second. Went to the US, never really played as well. Asked him about breaking McNulty's putter. Got into TV commentary in South Australia. I think won a bunch down there. That seems a fairly – should we end the podcast now? As he pretty much summed it up? And he did all that
1: without that reading a thing. It was nice talking to you. <laughs> really nice talking to you. Uh, I will do this again sometime.
0: I want to touch on all of those things, but I want to know about McNulty's putter. What's he talking about there?
1: What happened in the, in the late 70s, uh, Simon Hobday and I came up with this idea of challenging any other South African professional golfers to a baseball match. And uh, we got a sponsor who put up, you know, in those days, quite nice money for anybody that could beat us. Mm-hmm. And uh, all the guys came. It was it just, you know, it was one of those things that just caught everybody's attention. And, uh, I mean, we played against Gary Player. We played against Bob Charles. Um, and we played against, obviously, all the top South Africans, Yubayaki, John Bland, all of the top South African players. And as luck would have it, we won all but one of the matches, leading up to Nick Price. And uh, Nick Price, we played against Nick Price and he, he chose a, a South African partner by the name of Robbie Stewart and we beat them quite easily. And Nick Price said, just wait, just wait and I get my real partner. My real partner is McNulty. <laughs> McNulty and I are gonna beat you. Anyway, when we set up the match, both McNulty and, and Nick Price were playing great. And Simon, Hobbs, Simon and I were playing rubbish. So we knew we couldn't beat them. So Simon said, but right, I've got a plan. So what we his plan was to go and get a putter identical to McNulty's putter, which was a bullseye with a little kink in the head. Mm-hmm. And it had a blue grip on it. And we looked and looked and looked. And eventually we found this putter, identical putter. And we waited until Mark had finished practicing his putting, walking to the first tee, and we swapped putters in his bag. When he got to the first team, the announcer said, you know, on the team, Nick Price, and Nick Price hit on the team, Mark, Mark McNulty, regarded as one of the world's greatest putters. And as he said that, Simon Hobday reached into McNulty's bag, pulled the putter out, and snapped it over his knee. Well, Nick Price died across to try and save this putter. McNulty just stood there open mouthed. He couldn't believe what had happened. Anyway, everybody laughed and it carried on for three or four minutes and eventually got the other putter back, put it in his bag, and off we went. The first hole, McNulty had about a seven-foot putt for a birdie to win the hole and he missed that. The second, he three-putted from 20 feet. We beat them six
0: and four. <laughs> and he's probably he's sworn ever since that you put the wrong putter back in the bag, I'm sure. He claimed oh. that you probably broke <laughs> the real one. I'm listening to you tell this. It was, it was that. a lovely rounder of gold. I'm listening to you tell that story, Dale, and lots of things have changed in golf and we'll discuss some of them, but that would be an unimaginable thing to happen in this day and age, wouldn't it?
1: God oh, it could never happen. Things like that don't happen anymore. No. You know, you know, I mean I was lucky to have around me when I played the tour people like Simon Hobday, and there was another South African Tertius class, and then from Australia, Jack Newton, mm-hmm. Bobby Shera, Ian Stanley Stuart Ginn, you know, all of them just great, great characters Mm -hmm. and just fun to be around, every one of them. And all of them were up to mischief. There was always something going on. There was always somebody being ripped apart. There was always something, you know, really strange and funny happening.
0: Whenever I talk to players who played in that era, I always get this sense of a great collegiality between all the players, a real traveling circus of brotherhood where everybody was trying to beat everybody but there was fun had along the way you're still very involved in the professional game you commentate as I said every year when the tournaments come to South Africa do you see much of that anymore is the game poorer for it or could we not see the level of golf we see today if we still had the characters that we had in the 70s playing golf
1: I think it, you know it's a little bit of a little bit of each of those you know certainly because of the huge prize money players are taking the game so much more seriously. Also the different ways that people are traveling. And I'm not talking about just after this COVID thing, but you know, even before that, you know, people travel differently to the way we traveled. You know, we would go in and take over a small little guest house or a small little bed and breakfast in, in let's say we were playing in Ireland, you know, and the place would be just full of South Africans, Australians, and New Zealanders. And, uh, you know, that uh, we all would go out to dinner together and all that sort of stuff. That doesn't happen today. You know, people travel with their wives and families. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, and it really it boils down to just money. Yeah. You know, in those days there wasn't the money, you know, to be able to travel with your wife. Very few players travelled with their wives. And there just wasn't the money to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, today there obviously is a lot more prize money. Uh, certainly. You know, uh, the players do take it far more seriously today. They practice far harder. Mm -hmm. You know, in in our day, you know, you could count on one hand guys who really worked hard on their games. They really practiced, spent a lot of time on the practice team. You know, nowadays, everybody does. You know, and I I think that's changed a lot as well. Mm.
0: Is one better than the other, Dale? I suppose you can make arguments for both, can't you?
1: I think I think money's, money's hurt the game. I really do believe that. And I'm not envious at all. I really am not envious. I'm not envious. I would never, for all the money in the world, change mm-hmm. my 10 years that I played on the professional tour. I would never change that. Because I honestly believe I played at the perfect time. But I think money's hurting the game. And I think it's hurting the game internationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, not in America. No. You know, America are always going to be able to see the very best players. But you remember, I don't, I'm don't. i not sure how old you are, whether you remember Jack Nicklaus and Arnold Palmer and Tom Watson, all coming out to play in the Australian Open. Yep. You know, the year I played, they all played. Um, I went in 1971, 1972, and I think about 1976 or 7, I played in the Colgate tournament there. So I went to Australia three times to play. And every time I played, there were the top players playing. You know, well, you're not going to see that anymore. You're not going to see a tournament where you have Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, Brandon Shambaugh, Dustin Johnson, you know, and Rory McElroy all playing in Australia. So I think it's hurt the game from that point of view because the same thing is going to happen in South Africa, in South America, in Europe. You know, they're never going to see Tiger Woods and the very best players in the world. And I think that's, that's sad for me. That really is sad because there's nothing quite like seeing them live.
0: No, oh, no. It's great.
1: Television's great. Wow. But but seeing those players live, seeing that strike mm-hmm. that and the difference and the noise the ball the makes sound. from That's certain right. players. That's
0: right, yeah. You know,
1: it's 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 hard now, I don't think a lot of people understand, but you can hear mm-hmm. the difference between Tiger Woods hitting a shot and
0: and uh, <laughs> you've talked to, to somebody to a corner, player. haven't you? That's yeah. right. <laughs> Many other pros. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Indeed. It's true. and, and, And you're right. Even a lot of golfers in the modern era, I think, don't appreciate what the golf is like. I've often thought that the PGA Tours here in Australia should have a campaign every year, which is get to the golf. There's nothing like live golf. It's a sport you can't appreciate on television. And it's why I think week in and week out, those who watch the golf are golfers, because the picture doesn't really tell the story, but they understand the challenges the fa- the players are facing. A non golfer can't. All the putts look the same on TV. If you didn't play golf, they'd all look the same, wouldn't they? Fast downhill Have three seen- foot left to righters look the same as uphill three foot right to lefters, and we know we know the difference between those two. The non golfer yeah. doesn't.
1: You know, thank goodness from a television point of view, it's it's a it's a beautiful game to watch. Mm-hmm. You know, the golf courses are lovely. Mm-hmm. The the players. You know, are young and they looking, they look good and they mm-hmm. dress brightly, and you know. So I think that that does attract a certain amount of non-golfers. Mm-hmm. But you're 100 percent right. You've got to be a golfer to truly understand. understand the game. And you know, even today, and I'm sure if you ask Jack Newton or Bob Sherer or, or you know any uh, Mike Clayton, any players who played, you know, 20, 25, 30 years ago, I'll bet there's still people who come up to them mm-hmm. and say, you know, I watched you play. Mm-hmm in such and such a tournament mm-hmm. in 1980 or 1985 or 1990 or whatever the date might be. And, you know, that that for me is what we're losing now. We have, You know, we have tournaments here in South Africa. And, I mean, you know, we have a 1,000 people going out to watch. The, uh, it was so sad. Uh, we had the, the, the last time that uh, Greg Norman came to South Africa. He played at Houghton Golf Club, famous golf club in Johannesburg and uh, we, were, we had the television area that was near the 14th hole and I walked down from the television area because he was playing the 14th and I wasn't on at the time. So I walked down and I stood on the side of the fairway watching him and there were 45 people watching wow. and he was the number one golfer in the world at that time.
0: It's awful, isn't it?
1: 45 people live. Okay, it was a morning. He had a morning to your time. You so. It was early in the morning, but still, it, it was It was disgusting.
0: Yeah, that's really quite sad. It feels like, you're right, television does a lot for the game, but the game we see on television looks so green, so bright green, and is such a visual medium. What impact do you think that has had on golf and golfers' attitudes towards golf courses? I imagine when you grew up, golf courses were not as well conditioned as we've come to expect in the modern era, and I wonder whether the game's better for that and the role that television's played in that.
1: Well, you know, uh, I, we, own a, we own a golf course, mm-hmm. our family. We own this, the same golf course that my father worked at uh, 80 years ago. Wow. So we've been involved in a golf mm-hmm. course for 80 years, the same golf course. And, you know, so this, this question is actually very close to my heart because, you know, on one hand I work for television, on the other hand we own a golf course. Mm-hmm. And you see Augusta National and you see mm-hmm. Muirfield Village next week. You know, and Muirfield Village will be spectacular. Mm-hmm. I mean, that golf course is as good in terms of condition as Augusta National. And, uh, you know, it's just not possible to get a normal members club in that kind of condition. You know, if you've got, yes, if you've got a golf club like, um, like you know, Augusta National where they've got all kinds of money or you've got a golf club like... Uh, um, certain golf clubs in Britain where they've got all kinds of money. Yes, it might be possible to do, but a normal golf club, you could never spend that kind of money. You'd never have that available to get a golf course in that kind of condition mm. week in and week out. What also members, you know, the average golfer doesn't realise is that before a big tournament like that takes place, at many of those golf courses, they close them yeah. for two or three or four weeks yeah. to get them in that kind of condition. Now again, You couldn't expect members to do that. No. You know, you couldn't expect members not to play on the golf course where they pay to be a member and say, listen, we're closing it for a month because we're getting it ready for the pros. Yeah. I mean, you'd have a riot on your hands, I'm
0: sure. (laughs) Indeed. You know, there
1: there are a couple of factors there. But the the biggest factor is that somehow we've got to get through to to members that, you know, golf course doesn't have to be perfect to have fun on it. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it really doesn't. I mean, golf was never, Bob tell us, a game of perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to get bad lies. I mean, I would never forget my father telling me he grew up at a golf course when he first started in Cape Town called Royal Cape, the oldest golf course in South Africa. And he said, you know, if you drive on a fairway and you landed on grass, <laughs> he said, you got excited. <laughs> you could play the next sort of grass. <laughs> Most of the time your ball was on sort of the sandy line. And that's the way they played. And you never touched the ball. You never you know improved your lie or anything mm-hmm. on the fairways. Well, here in South Africa, we have a tremendous problem of improving your lie. Oh. Because golfers want to get off a perfect lie all the time. So really? a lot of golf courses here, week in, week out, year in year out, have improved lies on their fairways.
0: As and that's and, allowed.
1: It's allowed. It in fact it's become such a problem in our country wow. that the RNA... Has actually written a letter to the South African Golf Union to say, you've got to stop it. You've got to stop this. Yeah. You know, and, you know, clubs now are sort of putting their foot down and trying to stop it, but the members are up in arms. They want to play off perfect lies all the time. It's
0: me. It's not golf, though, is it, Dale? And Mike Clayton is one who says this all the time. He's been a member at Metropolitan in Victoria, which you may have played down in Melbourne. It's probably one of the five best conditioned golf courses in the world. And as he says quite rightly, he hasn't had a bad lie for 40 years, but that's not a good thing because bad lies sort the better players from the rest.
1: You know, when you when you reach your golf ball and you're playing your second shot into a green at a par four, let's say, and you've got to take a few things into account. You stand there and you look at half the distance. Is it an uphill shot? Is it a downhill shot? Is there any wind? And then you should take into account the lie of the golf ball. Mm. You know, that, that is one of the factors that should be taken into account. Well, we've just taken that out of the equation.
0: Goodness me.
1: Because every that. lie is perfect. And the trouble that. is on the tours, they expect every lie to be perfect. Yeah. Don't yeah. they let it be a little piece of mud on the golf ball or anything like that? Wow, you know, we'll have to have improved lies because there's <laughs> mud so on the much. ball. You know, it's, it's crazy. I would like to see a golf tournament play where you stand on the first tee, you carry your own clubs. You have no distance markers and you play you play golf and you've got to be finished in three hours. Oh,
0: Dale. Yeah.
1: And you don't touch your ball once unless you lose it.
0: You have been following me on social media, haven't you? You're a grumpy old man in my own mold. This is fantastic. This is what we want. I am I am a grumpy old man. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with it. People often say that, you know, oh, we need to get with the times and golf should evolve like other sports. It's a different contest to most sports golf, isn't it? Because the course is integral. It's not often that the playing field is integral to the competition. Football pitches around the world are the same size. The dimensions are the same. Cricket is fairly close. Tennis, we know, is defined by lines. But the golf course, the battle for professional golfers, is both against the other players, the field, and the golf course, isn't it? Which ultimately means that it's against themselves. So the easier you make the game, or the more the game evolves, we've just watched Bryson DeChambeau win, Averaging 350 yards off the tee. I'll repeat that for you, Dale. 350 yards average, which means he hit as many further as he did shorter.
1: The reason he won wasn't because of the 350-yard drives. No. It was because he had less putts than everybody else. He did. He
0: did. But I I think we all know that golf is a multi-dimensional, multi-skilled game. If one part of the game becomes... Too, too, too important, and the focus on driving distance is yeah. certainly. I think many of us would say that it changes the nature of the rest of the game, doesn't it? So you could make the case that he had less putts because he had shorter second shots because he hit it so far off the tee. I don't want to get into a discussion about Bryce River, but the general direction of the game, as someone who's been around it for a long time at all levels, what's your what's your take on the modern game?
1: They have to do something about the golf ball. They have to. They have to do something about the golf ball. They have to do something about uh, the driver heads. You know, unfortunately, all the research, the the design and research money, has gone into hitting the ball further, okay? And and it's worked for the top players, Mm -hmm. but it hasn't worked for the people who need the distance, which is the 50-year-old, 10-handicap golfer. He's maybe got three or four yards. He hasn't even noticed it. Mm -hmm. It's so little, so, you know, it's, it's exactly the wrong way around. What we need to do is find clubs that make him hit further, but make the tour pros that hit not 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 as far. Yeah. So that's not going to happen, because uh, I don't think that's possible to do. But, you know, what we can do is have a tournament golf ball mm-hmm. and have a regulation for tournament play where there's a restriction on golf clubs, you know, on, on drivers. You know, Irons... You know, you, you see sometimes you see a guy hitting an iron astronomical distance. But in a lot of cases, a lot of that is just the lofts have been bent stronger. Sure. You know, uh, in, in, a five-iron now is is a three-iron, you know, that's been bent to, to almost a three-iron. So, you know, I don't think irons are too much of a problem. The driver is the problem, and the golf ball is the problem. Mm. The second problem with the golf ball is it just goes too straight. Yes. You know, a guy like Lee Trevino or Sevi Ballesteros or, you know, they're real geniuses. I mean, everybody, Jack Newton, you know, Jack used to hit every shot he used to shape, every single shot he played. Uh, Bruce Devlin, Bruce Crampton, you know, all the great players. Peter Thompson, uh, they used to shape the shots that they played. You know, you don't do that anymore. Everybody stands up now, aims it straight at the flag and tries to hit it straight at the flag. Mm. You know, there's no playing to the left of the green or to the right of the green. Uh, one of the guys that commentates with me is a, uh, an 88-year-old man. His name is Dennis Hutchinson. No, you don't need to and tell me. you recognize like his voice. Oh, yeah.
0: He's yeah. got that
1: lovely whiskey, yeah. that whiskey voice. Mm-hmm. And Dennis Hutchinson still talks about a particular hole that Lee Trevino played here in South Africa where he had a drive and a forward. And he said that forward was a thing of beauty because he started it out for the left of the green with a cut and it pitched on the middle of the green, and because of the cut, it ran towards the flag. Today, that hole is a drive and a wedge. Yeah. That same hole, they hit in a wedge for their second shot. So, so you know, the game, is, the game has been, you know, really hurt badly and by it's that distance.
0: Not and the- there are
1: so many golf courses. And I'm sure in Australia, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. There's so many golf courses that you will not be able to play tournaments on. No.
0: That's right. And I always make this point when we have this discussion, Dale. This is not a criticism of the players. They are wonderfully skilled and very hardworking and they are answering brilliantly the questions that the game is asking of them. What we need to change is the questions and then we'll see different answers and then the game. Uh, Let's not go down there because we could talk about that for hours. You mentioned it earlier. Actually, first I want to get your thoughts. You said to me before we started recording, you must ask me about Newt. I assume you mean Jack Newton, so I'm guessing that you must have had... Some times with Jack over the years, one of our great Australian players, obviously, Jack Newton, uh, and one of our great Australian contributors to the game, commentated here like yourself for many years on television. What are your memories of Jack Newton? Why did you specifically want me to ask you about him?
1: Well, I I uh, won a couple of tournaments in South Africa, amateur tournaments, when I was 16 years old. And uh, a great South African golf benefactor sat down with my mother and tried to convince my mother that I should leave school and go and play on the amateur circuit in in Britain. And my mother wouldn't have it. She said, we've sent him to private school. He's going to finish his schooling. And eventually this guy won the argument because he said to my mother, he said, you know, listen, Glenn, that was her name. He said, listen, Glenn, even if he stays at school for another 10 years, he's never going to be clever. (laughs) So three months later, I was playing on the amateur golf circuit in, in Europe. And Jack Newton was there. Mm-hmm. Jack Newton arrived to play. So I met Jack Newton when I was sixteen years old, and uh, we played in we played in tournaments like a British Amateur, and then we went to France and played in the French Open, and then and then we spent two weeks sharing a room in Germany. Good Lord! At the German Amateur and <laughs> the German Open, and but now I, I'm not sure exactly how old Jack is. I would say Jack is probably 71 or
0: 72. That sounds, that, sound about, sound right? that sounds about right. Yeah.
1: I think he's, I think he's two or three years older than I am. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you, when you're 68 and 71, it's not a big difference, but when you're 16 and 19, uh-huh. it's a
0: huge difference. Yeah, very much. Yeah.
1: And I'm sharing a room with Newt and, you know, Newt, you know, Newt was a ladies man. He liked, <laughs> he liked the ladies in those days. And well, I'm sure he still does. And, uh, you know, I learned. Let's just say I learned a lot. <laughs> I, I arrived in Germany. I was 16 years old. I left two weeks later. I was 43.
0: <laughs> I think you've just summed up Jack Newton beautifully. That is uh, that is one of One of our great icons of golf. Just to butt in quickly for a moment, folks, I hope you're enjoying our discussion with Dale Hayes. And if you are, I just wanted to remind you that if you haven't already done so, there's an entire back catalogue of the thing about golf to be enjoyed at either the Golf Australia website or through your podcast app. If you haven't yet done so, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts, and you'll get access to all 23 of our previous episodes. From the high profile like Mark Leishman and Kari Webb to some lesser known but still fascinating characters like Barnboogle Dunes owner Richard Sattler and Royal Melbourne Course Superintendent Richard Forsyth, there have been some terrific insights along the way. And if you like what we do here, tell a friend that might be similarly inclined. The more the merrier when it comes to in-depth golf discussion. And remember, it's all free and delivered straight to your device without you having to do a thing. So go and subscribe now, and in the meantime, back to Dale Hayes. Strikes me there are some similarities between the cultures of South African and Australian golf, Dale. I just listened to your fabulous, I mentioned this podcast probably too often, you did a fabulous interview with Richard Kaufman last year on his The Round podcast, and you talked about the lack of television golf in South Africa. Where did you get your golf information from? Why did you want to be a tour professional if you weren't getting to see it on TV? Where was, what, what did golf look like for the spectator or the fan in the 70, 60s and 70s before television came along.
1: You know, fortunately for us in South Africa, in the in the 40s, 50s, and and uh, in the 40s and 50s, we had Bobby Locke, mm-hmm. who was one of the best golfers in the world. Mm. And Bobby Locke brought out a lot of players to play exhibition matches, one of which was, was Peter, Peter Thompson. Peter
0: Thompson, that's right.
1: He played a whole lot of matches against Peter Thompson in South Africa in the early 50s. He played against Sam Snead, um, in fact, against Sam Snead, they played thirteen individual matches. Sam Snead won one, they half won, and Bobby Locke won eleven. Wow! Of the wow. matches. Wow. Uh, wow! And then, of course, in the middle sixty, in the middle fifties, Gary Player started, mm-hmm. and he started winning in the sort of late fifties. He started winning tournaments. He won the Open Championship in nineteen fifty nine. He was second in the U.S. Open in nineteen fifty eight, and then Gary, you know, Gary was, I mean, in uh, every newspaper. There were things about Gary player, Gary player, Gary player. So, you know, Gary was everybody's hero. And everybody, when Gary teed up in a tournament, everybody came to watch because there was no television in those days. And Gary brought out many of the best golfers in the world. He brought out – the first one was Tommy Bolt. He brought him out after – Tommy Bolt won the 1958 US Open and Gary was second. He brought him out. He brought out uh, Arnold Palmer in the early 60s, Jack Nicklaus, Billy Casper, Lee Trevino, Seve, Gene Littler, oh, the list goes on. So we got an opportunity of seeing those players live. Now I was even more lucky because every one of those matches, barring the one against Tommy Bolt, they played a match at our golf club. Oh wow! So I was incredibly lucky. I mean, for example, he, they played, they played him. He played against Jack Nicklaus, and the the match was going to be on the Monday. But they came and had a practice round on the Sunday afternoon. So we got to watch 18 holes with Jack Nicklaus, and there were 20 of us. Wow. Walking around with Jack Nicklaus playing 18 holes at our our home golf club. Goodness me. So, you know, we were very lucky from that point of view. But the biggest thing was the fact that Gary Player was just, you know, everywhere in the media. You know, everybody was following Gary Player. You know, a lot of our other sports, we weren't allowed to play. We were banned because of apartheid. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that Gary was the guy that was flying the South African flag. Yeah. All the, wherever he went. In Australia, he won your your Open, I think, seven, seven. times. yeah. You know, he won, he won, the obviously, the Open Championship. He was winning in America. He was winning all over the world. And that's what, you know, made us keen on golf. We only got television in 1975. Yeah. That was the first time we got television. It's remarkable,
0: years. isn't it? So how, it would have taken quite some years before that sort of spread through the whole country, and it was common for people to have televisions because that's the story yeah. of television, one or two per street for the first year or two until they be, become cheap enough for everybody to do it. Now, of course, we have them in every room in the house and don't bother turning them on anymore because everything's on the phone, Dale, so you don't even need the television. Anymore. You don't how, you need a TV anymore. No, how the world changes. That, what you're describing there in the 50s sounds very much, obviously we had television. Uh, as well, very much like the Greg Norman experience for Australia in the 80s, and that led to a golf, well, whether it led to it, certainly contributed to a golf boom that we still talk about today as the Halcyon Days. Is that true still in South Africa? What's what's the game look like in South Africa in terms of popularity now? Is it having struggles the way we seem to see in most parts of the world?
1: You know, the, the game of golf, we have, we have fewer golfers in South Africa every year. The numbers go slightly down. And that's because we've had a, we've had a lot of people emigrating out of the country, and you've seen the benefit of that in Australia, because mm-hmm. I think many many South Africans emigrate to Australia, some to New Zealand and, and elsewhere in the world. So a lot of a lot of people have emigrated out of South Africa, and and those are the kind of people that would be golfers. Right. So the numbers of golfers have gone down. We we've got now we've probably got close to five hundred thousand people who play golf in South Africa, but of that. Less than a third of that are registered golfers right. who are members of clubs, etc. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the numbers are, are fairly small, which, you know, also makes it interesting because, you know, with 140,000, 150,000 registered golfers, we, we're still able to produce really, really good players. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we've consistently done that for 50 years. Yeah. You know, having top like, top players on the European Tour, top players on the PGA Tour, it's quite incredible how many good players we produce you know,
0: out of such a small number. Like Australia, I feel like you punch above your weight in terms of professional golf. So you you only got to reel off the names, Ells, Goosen, Westhazen, Schwarzel. Uh, That's just in the last sort of 15 or 20 years, and every generation has a smattering of fabulous South African golfers, of which you were one, and I wanted to talk to you about this. You mentioned earlier your professional golf career was quite short in terms of professional golf careers, about 10 years, I think about the age of 28 You'd retired, is that right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I played, I played for 10 years. Um, you know, I read I read somewhere that uh, Bobby Jones retired at 28.
0: He did. I was, was so going to ask thought, you about that. I thought that it, so.
1: I thought there was a good idea. What I what I forgot, I didn't read the rest of the article, <laughs> where he just won the Grand Slam and he had two degrees and all those kind of good things. I didn't finish the article, unfortunately. Now, you know, when I retired it was when the apartheid thing was really getting very very hot, oh. and we were started starting to be banned as South Africans from a lot of different countries.
0: What sort of year what, like Sweden and Japan. What sort of years are we talking here, Dale? For those who might not remember,
1: uh, nineteen in the early eighties. Early eighties, yeah. 1980, 1981. You know, uh, Hugh Biaki and I got uh, we played in the uh, World Cup of Golf in nineteen seventy-nine in Greece, and uh, um, we in the previous few years, Bobby Cole and I won the World Cup, and 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 Bobby Cole. And, uh, um, a couple of years later I finished second in the individual and Bobby Cole won the individual so we, we'd done quite well in the World Cup and Gary played, Harold Henning had won it so it was kind of an important event for South Africans it was one of the few kind of international team events yeah. that South Africans could play in mm. so it was a big event for us and we went to we went to Greece and we played in the Pro-Am and then I went to practice Yubayaki went into town to do some shopping and they came and told me that, they, that uh, we couldn't play in the tournament because the African League of Nations had decided that they would all um, uh, not go to the Olympics if they allowed South Africa to play in the World Cup. Wow. And uh, so when Hugh Barkey got back, I had to tell him that. Of course, he thought I was joking. It took me about half an hour to convince him that I was telling the truth. But we had to withdraw from that, that World Cup. And that was the start of it for me. You know, uh, uh, not being being able to play in that and then not being able to go to certain different countries that we had played in and we were now not allowed to play in. You know, and I was kind of going, you know, do I really need this kind of stuff and everything like that? And that's where I sort of got the interest for other aspects of the game of golf. Mm -hmm. It was in the early 80s. And so I got involved in other things.
0: Yeah, because, of course, Gary Player, we know, dealt with a lot of that during that time. But what was your own... Personal feelings at the time, Dale, and as time's gone on, have you reflected back? I suppose it would be easy to look back and say, you were kind of caught in the crossfire of something bigger, which was a noble purpose, but you've kind of been sacrificed through no fault of your own at the altar along the way. Does that sound, does that make some sense, what I'm suggesting?
1: Absolutely right. You know, you, you feel as a sportsman, you know, you feel kind of hard done by because all you want to do is play your sport. Now, whether you're a rugby player or a cricketer, because they were far worse off than we were. Mm-hmm. You know, at least we could play. Yeah. A lot of those guys, you know, a guy like Barry Richards, you know, had to move to Australia to, to play top class cricket. He couldn't play in South Africa. So uh, you know, we were better off than a lot of people. But you felt like you have been that you were, you have been sacrificed. You felt like you were being picked on. And, you know, for a lot of us, we spent very little time in South Africa. You know, a lot of us were too young to know anything about politics. Okay, certainly, you know, I, I I do take the point where you know if you live in a country, you have to be you know kind of responsible for what happens in that country in 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 a way. And and yes, I was responsible, absolutely. You know, and what was happening in South Africa when I look back on it was absolutely and totally wrong. No question about that. It was it was a, a a terrible thing that, that was happening in South Africa. But, you know, to, to sort of say that by not allowing me to play golf somewhere was going to change it was hard for us to understand. Sure. However, however, in the long run, it went a long way to changing things.
0: Yeah,
1: Because, you know, as the I mean, big sport in South Africa is rugby. Yes. And because we couldn't play rugby, a lot of the a lot of the people were saying, "Listen, we've got to do something to change this." Yeah. You know, we want to see our best rugby players playing against Australia, playing against the All Blacks in New Zealand, playing against England. So, you know, I can't say that it wasn't successful, no, because in a in a, in a lot of respects, it was.
0: Let's uh, let's move uh, uh, away from that. That ten year career, that ten year professional career, and indeed the, the time leading up to it, you were quite a special player. Uh, you were one of those who. Well, from the outside, the career looks a bit streaky, but some of the achievements are extraordinary. I think you won your first tournament as a professional. You won your first tournament on the European Tour (laughs) as a professional. What are your memories of your younger years? And uh, I know you reflected on this with Richard Kaufman about perhaps not realising how much talent you had at the time, Uh, but how do you recall that unfolding? And the secondary question is about early success and perhaps the dangers of that, which we often overlook.
1: Well, you know, if I look back now, the biggest mistake I made was was that that I, I turned professional too early. Mm-hmm. You know, not that not that I want to give back the Spanish Open that I okay,
0: but, <laughs> oh yeah, eighteen. Eight, you but, held that record for twenty thirty years, did you not? Something like that. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah it was probably about thirty something years. Yeah, yeah. But um, you know, if I'd waited a couple more years, you know, those 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 years between eighteen and twenty. Mm-hmm. You know, make a big difference. And, you know, for example, Jack was so much more mature than I was. You know, and, and you know, those two or three years that he was older than me made a huge difference. Yeah. And, you know, golf, golf. when I was young, it came very, very easily. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I played a lot. I practiced a lot. I, I took the game seriously. Obviously, I had talent. Um, but, you know, I knew – I also – And, and, you know, I thank my father for this. I knew how to get around a golf course efficiently. You know, I didn't do anything especially well. I wasn't like people would say that I'd be remembered as a great driver or a great iron player or a great anything. You know, I just was able to get around the golf course very efficiently. And, um, you know, because of that, you know, when I came out on the European tour and the South African tour in those early days, you know, I won tournaments straight away. You know, I won my very first, as you say, the very first tournament I ever played in. As a professional, I won. And then I went over three months later, I went to Europe and played in the Spanish Open and won that. So, you know, it was crazy. I mean, when I led the Order of Merit, I was 22 and 23 years old, you know, leading the Order of Merit in Europe. So, you know, it was crazy how much success I had at an early age. And I think that spoiled me. And, you know, when I went to America, I spent two years on the PGA Tour in America and just the fact that I wasn't always in one of the last groups, you know, I got I got down in the dumps and you know, sucked. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I didn't like I didn't like not to be in contention on a regular basis. Uh-huh. I like you know if I want if I was going to play on the professional tour, I wanted to be in contention. You know, I didn't want to be uh, kind of a 40th place finisher and.
0: There's, it's often said youth being wasted on the young. Is that an example of that in some ways? The world must have looked like such a simple place to you and you must have known everything. You were succeeding at everything. It all came so easily. You must have wondered what was wrong with everybody else.
1: No, it was, you know, listen, it was, it was um, an unbelievable experience mm. to be able to travel around the world. You know, I couldn't rent a motor car.
0: Wow. You know,
1: I had to go and travel with and somebody who could
0: rent a car because I wasn't old enough. Old enough. Wow. Goodness <laughs> me. I recall Matteo Manicero winning a car for a whole in one, one year, two years before he would ever be able to drive it. <laughs> it was, I think he was 17 or something, and, and at the time, he needed to be 19 to be able to drive the car. Quite remarkable. What did you learn from those things? Uh, uh, it feels like a bunch of things happened which perhaps cut short a career which could have still been anything. Ten years is not a long time in golf, and 28 is not old in golf. There's a lot of golf left in a player at 28. and In fact, we used to think back in the day that a player really didn't start to mature until their 30s. So you were probably yeah, on the cusp of perhaps the best years of your career. Um, what do you sort of think about that in in hindsight? Did you – not would you swap it. Have you learnt something from the way your life has unfolded there that you couldn't have learnt had you had the career that looked like you were heading for? That's a crazy question yeah, I don't, don't want to try to ask. But you think- know,
1: you don't learn anything in golf from winning. Mm. You learn from losing. That's that's the one thing I've realised. You know, winning, all you, all you do after, after a win is you go and celebrate. You know, you don't think back. You know, you never sit there and think, you know, Wow, if I hadn't made that putt at number fifteen, or if I hadn't hit that great chip at number eleven, or the good iron shot at number thirteen, whatever it was that that, you know, allowed you to win. You don't ever think like that. You know, you just go and you celebrate your win. Mm-hmm. And but when you lose, mm-hmm. you analyse why you've lost and what went wrong and what you can do better next time and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I wish I'd had I had a little bit of a slump in in 1972 when, when I was 19 years old. So my second year on the tour, I had sort of a, a three or four month period where I didn't play so well and I was missing a few cuts and stuff like that. But other than that, all the way through till the time I went to America, okay, you know, I played very consistently well. You know, I was winning three or four tournaments a year, you know, in South Africa and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it really was just... At the bottom line, it was just too easy. And I wasn't used to struggling. I'd never struggled, really struggled. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, when I look back, I wish there, had, there was a period where I really had to fight mm-hmm. to do well. You know, that only came after I got out of golf. You know, I, I uh, went into business and, and things didn't go well. And I had a fight.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was the first time that I had to actually, you know, get back on my feet and start again, you know. And you know, really, I think for for most people, if that happens earlier in your life, I think that's actually that's really good for you. That you have to be tough and you have to fight for something. You know, Tiger. Tiger's been incredibly lucky. You know, I mean, uh, you know, in terms of his God. Listen, he's had a lot of lot of issues as well, but and certainly a lot of health issues. But. he but from the time he started until, until 2008 or whatever it was, he was unbelievably lucky. I mean, he never had any sort of period where he really, you know, dipped down. Perhaps he was just so talented that it was never going to happen. But, you know, he was very, very, very fortunate. Even Jack Nicholas had a couple of periods in mm-hmm. his career, you know, where he, where he struggled, where he had a comeback. You know, 1980 being what? Mm-hmm. He went for lessons with Phil, uh, Phil Rogers, short game lessons, changed the way he was pitching and chipping and stuff like that and you know say so he went through some some difficult periods but you know i think i think it's important for people to have that that's what builds your character
0: they're the bogeys of life aren't they you can't go through a golf career without making bogeys you can't go through life without a couple of bogeys and you we know that the best golfers are the ones who can put the bogeys aside and come back with a birdie to offset you never get it back as norman you never get a bogey back he'd say but you can offset it by making a birdie, and I suspect that's possibly what you're talking about. Is is that? Uh, well,
1: I'm even talking about worse than a bogey. I'm talking about you know going through some times where maybe there are a couple of doubles thrown in, <laughs> or even a
0: triple, <laughs> even God forbid, dare we say it, a shank. Uh, <laughs> no, don't, don't,
1: don't, use that. Don't, word. God,
0: don't, don't say it. I've heard other pros use the word "lucky" sometimes. We're talking. I don't think anybody's suggesting he's a lucky golfer, but it's interesting, isn't it? He's he might be the most interesting and intriguing golfer, I think, almost perhaps ever, because he's been so good for so long. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? For the best part of 15 years, Dale, my mum's not a particular golf fan. She loves Tiger. I can recall periods of a couple of years where when Tiger would finish second or third, she would say to me, oh, what's wrong with Tiger? (laughs) That's just... Second or third in a golf tournament, there's nothing wrong with anybody. There was that period Brian Lara would make 100 every time he went out to bat, and if he didn't, people would say, what's wrong? Tiger yeah. reached that in golf, and I don't think anybody else has ever done that, have they? You
1: know, I, I think there's no question that Tiger has played the best golf that's ever been played. Yes. I don't think anybody would argue that. Um, whether he's the greatest golfer of all time, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's a different that's a different question because, you know, I think there you've got to look at – actual stats and and the number of wins, which puts Jack Nicklaus ahead of him at the moment. But, you know, I, I, I don't think there's any doubt that he's played the best golf. I mean, I don't think Nicklaus and I think Nicklaus would be the first one to say to you that Tiger Woods could do most things better than he could do them. Um, you know, he, he had one, one weak point, in my opinion, was his driving.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, he didn't drive the ball if he could if he could have driven the ball like Rory or in yeah. fact even like Greg Norman yeah if he could have, if he had Greg Norman's driving he would have won 30 majors by now yeah you know no question about it but you know you know the, uh, not everybody gets given everything no. you know and and Jack Nicholas and I don't know whether you recall this but Jack Nicklaus in 1997 when he won that master's Was it 97, 98, 98? Seven, 97. Um, Jack Dictus said, you know, this guy will go on to win 10 Masters tournaments, okay, but a lot depends on his health Mm -hmm. and and his marriage. Yeah. And how right he was. Yeah, absolutely. Wasn't that incredible?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We've seen jaw-dropping golf from Tiger, haven't we, that have made other good players, really good players, great players stop and say, wow. (laughs) <laughs> that's pretty special. I mean, most professional golfers have seen pretty much everything, but most of them will tell you they've seen Tiger do something that they didn't think was doable, and that's a really rare special turn. And Combined with a work ethic, Dale, which is pretty impressive as well, I would think, it, to go through what he's gone through and still be at it after everything—absolutely staggering.
1: You know, I think that you know his father. His father said to somebody, he said, "You know, Tiger's." Tiger's changed the tour because he's made everybody work a lot harder. Mm-hmm. He says, and they all working a lot harder, and they're working as hard as Tiger used to work, but Tiger's working harder than that now. Yeah, incredible, You know, and I think Tiger, not only on his golf, on his body, you know, I think Tiger is very, you know, one-dimensional mm. in, in, in those sort of things that he, you know, when he sets his mind to something, he goes out and does it at 150%. Whereas, you know, Jack Nicklaus, you know, as as, uh, Chichi Rodriguez once said, Jack Nicklaus, he hunts, he fishes, he plays tennis, and he wins golf championships. He's a legend in his spare time. You know, that's the difference. Right there is the difference.
0: It's a delightful one, isn't it? He had five kids, Jack, and about a 1,000 grandkids and great-grandkids these days. He's, sort of, not, he's done, certainly done the family thing along the way. Who've been the players, Alan, you've been up close to all of them, both through your playing career and through your TV career? Who have been the players that have made you stop and think, wow?
1: Well, Nicholas, absolutely. You know, I played, Funny enough, I played the first two rounds with him at Manly. Mm-hmm. And uh, he shot 62 in the first round. Mm-hmm. I shot 72. <laughs> I way. thought I shot 100. <laughs> What? I promise you. I thought I walked off the golf course. I was so despondent. When I signed, when I actually signed my card and I saw 72, I got quite excited. <laughs> it's not too bad. I
0: thought,
1: I thought I'd scored about 100 next year. So, you know, I, I played with him there. I played the first two rounds with him at Manly, and I played the first two rounds with him at the Open at Muirfield. Uh-huh. When Trevino won. mm mm-hmm. uh And so, you know, I was fortunate to see Nicholas, you know, up close. Mm-hmm. When he was the greatest golfer in the world, and he was phenomenal. His his, concert, his ability to concentrate was was quite incredible. Eh? You could see, you know, when he got near a shot, he switched off completely. You know, and his ability, Tiger, you know, Tiger's the same. Gary Player was the same. All the great players, all the really really great players, were able to do that. And uh, you know, that's Nicholas was phenomenal uh, from that point of view. So, Nicholas, certainly, Trevino was was wonderful. You know, Trevino, you know, he had his own way of doing it. He was completely different to anybody else. And, uh, you know, he was beautiful to watch. He just played such wonderful golf shots. And he had such great feel, mm-hmm. you know, for the game. Um, and, then, uh, you know, somebody who people don't talk about today is Johnny Miller.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Johnny Miller in the middle 70s. You know, was was a phenomenal player. He was winning, you know, he was winning tournaments in in uh, in the desert in America, in, in Arizona, and stuff like that. He was winning them by ten and twelve and thirteen shots consistently. Yeah. He won a few of them like that, not just one. You know, and he was he was incredible for a few years. He really was. He was he was certainly the best middle eye middle and short iron player I ever saw. I mean, he was. You know, Harvey Penick said, take dead eight. That was Johnny Miller. Mm-hmm. You know, and Johnny Miller once said, he said, you know, sometimes I, I put a nine-iron in my hand or a wedge in my hand, and he said, I'm looking and he said if, I, if I can pitch this three foot past the hole with a touch of draw and it spins left, I could actually hold this. Wow. Now, you know, that is unbelievable.
0: It's extraordinary. You know,
1: just, yeah. But that's the thought process that he had at that time. He was, phenomenal. he was a phenomenal player. Tom Weisskopf was a wonderful player. He had a beautiful golf stream. Tom Weisskopf for me was a little bit like Ernie Else.
0: Uh-huh. You know,
1: Ernie Else coming up against Tiger. Yeah. Tom Weisskopf came yeah, up yes. against Nicholas. Yes. And kind of well, Ernie's done a lot better than Tom Weisskopf did. But um, you know, I think Tom Weisskopf would have won many, many, many more tournaments had it not been, had it not been for Jack Nicholas. And then, of course, you know, later, um uh well Sebi's golf actually his his best golf was played after I stopped but I played with Sebi in 1974 Uh, one of the the first tour that he ever played was here in South Africa he came and played on the Sunshine Tour oh
0: really I didn't know that with his brother Manuel
1: Mm -hmm. and I played the last round of a tournament with him and as we walked off the 18th green Manuel said to me he said my brother good Are you going to be a champion and I had to agree. He was phenomenal. He was he was 18 years old, and I promise you, he was absolutely phenomenal. And Sebi, you know, I, I, you know, people use, he was a good friend. I, I probably wasn't a good friend of mine, but I knew him well. I played a lot of golf with him. Mm-hmm. You know, in 1975, 1978, and nine, you know, when I, uh, 1978, I was second on the European Tour and he was first. So we got drawn together a lot. And uh, Sebi, he was a wonderful guy with other players. You know, he wasn't so wonderful with the establishment. <laughs> no. He didn't like to be bossed around. No. But um, Sevy was wonderful to the other players. He really was. He, if he could help you, he would. And he would show you how he did things and stuff like that. And he, Seve was a genius. Yeah. He really was. He was, uh, well, I'm so lucky that I got to see him because he was special.
0: Cl- Clayton says the other players adored him which I've always thought was a very interesting word. Do you see what he's saying? Do, would you agree with that?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, um, Tony Johnston and I talk about talk about it often. And, and Tony, I promise you, he gets this look in his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't even get when he looks at his wife. <laughs> <laughs> but really, no, I would, I would say that. Yeah. And he, was, he was really a nice guy. Yeah. He really was. He would stop. He would chat to players who weren't even in the same class as him. You know, you would never see Tiger doing that. You know, you'd never see Nick Faldo doing that or players like that. He would take the time to stop. And if you asked him a question, he'd try and help you. He'd go and show different players how to chip and play trap shots and stuff like that. He was a terrific guy. He really was. As I say, you know, he felt hard done by by the establishment. Mm -hmm. You know, I suppose coming from a country where golf wasn't that – popular and that recognized. He didn't get a lot of the credit that he felt he was due. Mm-hmm. And, and a very similar thing in South Africa with Gary Player. You know, mm-hmm. we never saw Gary Player ever win a major championship on television.
0: Wow. That's staggering. So,
1: you know, Gary is not is not as adored in South Africa as he is, like in Australia.
0: Australia. In Australia. You know, if Gary
1: goes to Australia, people love him. he goes to America, they love him. Yeah. South Africa – he doesn't get that credit
0: It's a funny. or the credit that he
1: deserves.
0: Yeah, funny. Well, the other thing that Clayton says, just to take a quick detour, is that uh, according to Sevy's brothers, Sevy's best golf was played when he was about 15 or 16. They would say to Clayton, oh, you should have seen him then. He could really play then. <laughs> Much better than now. We know what we saw from him. So, Well, I
1: saw him when he was 70. Okay. He played in his very first tournament in um, that I can remember, he might have played a Spanish Open before that. I'm not sure about that, but he played an Italian Open at 17, okay, at uh, in Venice. Mm-hmm. And Peter Ruostas won, and Johnny Miller and I were second. And he played, and I went to watch it.
0: Oh wow! Okay,
1: because Manuel, you know Manuel Balaserech was a regular on the tour, mm-hmm. and Manuel said, "My young brother's playing. He must come and he must watch it." And I went and actually stood and watched him practice. And he was beautiful, eh? You know, he had so much flair.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, and it, he was like a ballet dancer. Yeah. He really was. And in those days, you know, later on in his career, he, got, he started to get technical. Yeah. The worst thing that happened to Sevi Ballesteros was, was Nick Faldo, Sandy Lyle, and, and uh, Ian Rusman. Yeah. Because they were beautiful strikers at the golf ball, all of them. And Sevi wasn't. No. And Sevi watched them and wanted to start to be like them instead of playing the way he played. And that's where guys like Bobby Locken and, and players like that, you know, were, were so great. They never try to change the way they played. Yeah. You know, and I think that's very important for young people. You know, if, if, you, if you've got a talent for this game, as I said earlier, you don't get given everything. But if you've got a talent for this game, work on your strong points, you know, and get your strong points, you know, to the highest possible level. Yeah. And, and you know, you're always going to have something that you don't do quite as well as somebody else. Don't worry
0: about it. Ironically, we're probably seeing a bit of a move back towards that, Dale. There was a period of probably the last 20 or 30 years where swings looked very similar at the top level. You think of Charles Schwartz or Adam Scott, uh, beautiful beautiful actions to watch, but very orthodox and hard to pick one from the other necessarily. We're now moving into a period where it looks a little more like the 70s and 80s, where the swings were different, the Matthew Wolf's and Ricky Fowler's a bit older, but he has a an action that's a bit funky. Dustin Johnson with the funny wrist at the yeah. top of the swing. It, it seems the to have, everything. Well, <laughs> if you really want to go off the charts, absolutely. But we we seem to have come yeah. almost full. No, circle you're, you're 100 you? right. It's interesting. Yeah,
1: I think people are trying different things, and I think people are. I think the the coaches are allowing players to be more individual. Mm. They're not, you know, they're not saying to a player, "This is how you have to play the game," because there is no one way to play the game. You know, th- you know there were there were so many examples of wonderful players yeah. who, who, you know, um, Jim Fury, You don't have to go further than that. Yeah. You know, who played beautiful yeah. golf for for so long with an awkward action, wh- yeah. what looked awkward. awkward. Obviously, it felt natural to him. Yeah. But you know, one player that I that I've forgotten to mention. I don't know how much he played in Australia. Was Roberto De Vicenza?
0: Not very much. I don't know how much. Not much. Did he play in Australia? I look. At, I'm guessing he would have been here at some point, but certainly you don't hear of the the tournaments that he played here. No. So
1: he was hmm. a phenomenal player. You know, he had this action. He used to stand. He used to practice. He used to beat balls all the time. And he'd stand in, He looked like he sort of took the club back, and then he just looked like he dropped the club on the ball. You know, it it, it was so easy, and he looked like. You know, he looked like he had so much time that if the club was, wasn't was in, in, in the perfect place, he looked like he could always save it. Wow. You know, he looked like he had that ability to be able to save it. And uh, I get that feeling sometimes with Ernie.
0: Uh-huh. You know, that
1: Ernie, yeah. he's not quite where he is, that he actually has time to, you know, to to just treat the club face open or closed, and you know, and try and save the shot. Uh, Roberto was absolutely, if Roberto could have putted, Mm. He promised you that guy would have won five hundred tournaments around the world, seven hundred tournaments around the world. I mean, there would be no limit. And the credible thing—he was always a club professional.
0: Of course, he's isn't it. Always, yes.
1: had a, yes. always had a club job in, in Argentina.
0: Yeah, nobody credible. gets everything, Dale. Nobody gets everything, as you said before. <laughs> if only he could putt. If only he could drive it. If only he was a better That's wedge right. player. Who knows what might have been done? Um, I wonder. Peter Thompson once said he he saw his swing on video once said, I don't ever want to see that again. I thought I looked like Sam Snead. That's the mental image he wanted to play with. He didn't want to see his actual swing. It feels like the video camera turned golf into a game of positions. Trackman might have turned it back into a game of it doesn't matter what it looks like, this is the number you need to achieve. And whatever way you want to get there is fine as long as you come to that destination. It's ironic how that's worked, isn't it?
1: That is, you know, uh, it's it's funny you, you mentioned the video camera. I asked Nick Price a question a while ago, you know, a number of years ago, and I said to him, what do you think the biggest change has been in golf? Now, I know Nick has been very vocal about the golf ball and the drivers and the ball going too far, and, and I was waiting for him to say, <laughs> you know, the big-headed drivers and the mm. graphite shaft, and, and he said the video camera. Right. He said that is the biggest change in, in golf since I played wow. he said because now you can see your own swing mm-hmm. and he said you can you know somebody can show you what position you need to be in and and you can go and hit 10 balls and come back and see if you've, you've been able to get in that position now uh, David Ledbetter told me that Nick Price was the easiest person he's ever coached mm. because he was standing there he'd watch a few shots and he'd say Nick just try and get the club just a wee bit more open at the top of the backswing And he'd watch two or three shots, and Nick would get it it in position. He said, that's perfect. And that would be the end of the lesson. Whereas Nick Uh Faldo would come along and he'd say, Nick, you know, we need to do this. And Nick said, why do we need to do this? And they'd have to go and break down every single thing and explain to Nick exactly why he wanted to do everything. You know, and he said it it was very different coaching those different players.
0: Yeah, extraordinary. We underrate Nick Price, don't we? We forget how phenomenally good he was for a period there in the early 90s where he was clearly the best player in the world by some margin. What a fantastic player.
1: He certainly was. Uh, you know, Nick, uh, I, I was around when Nick was an amateur. Well, they came from Zimbabwe, not from South Africa. But um, uh, I remember just before he turned professionally, he'd just come out of the army and uh, he was – contemplating turning professional, but they were kind of worried because they didn't didn't come from a family that had a lot of money and everything like that. And uh, I know, like many other of the South Africans at the time, we said to him, you've got to do it because he was phenomenal even then. I mean, there's a 19, 20-year-old. He was a phenomenal player. And there's another case of a guy being a little bit older Mm. before he he actually made the decision. Uh, Mark McNulty Mm. is another example. Mark McNulty, I think, only turned pro when he was about 24, 25. Wow. Maybe even later than that. Wow. And and Mark, you know, Mark has had a fantastic career. I mean, Mark still plays in the odd senior tournament now. it still does okay, yeah. you know, even though he's retired. Yeah. But he's a phenomenal player.
0: Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And talk about turning pro a little bit later. What life Nick Price had seen. Actual war. Seriously yeah. difficult and confronting yeah. life. Golf must look easier compared to those things. You'd never make that comparison, I'm sure, but internally there must be a knowledge that no putt now, is, you know, is that scary. No,
1: in Australia I guess you never had national service. No. You didn't go to the army. No. Now we did in South Africa and and obviously in, in Zimbabwe they did. Yeah. And we did in South Africa. Right. But I just I'm going off the subject now. But I had I went to the army for six months. Oh, I didn't know that. There you just go. Just before I turned professional Yeah. Uh-huh. So when I was seventeen and seventeen years old for the for six, I was supposed to go for nine months, but because I was going to play, and, you know, two professionals going to play, they allowed me to get up a little bit early. And uh, anyway, while I was while I was in the army, uh, I'd been there about a month, and I got a I got a message that the captain wanted to see me. So I was in a complete panic. I didn't know what I'd done wrong because I didn't know what I was supposed to do, you know, and and all I because I played golf. That's all I did. I played golf and I painted buildings.
0: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> you know, they wouldn't allow me near a gun or anything like that. <laughs> well,
0: you weren't know? that clever, Doug. So, we, we already established that.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So so anyway, I go into the captain's, uh, captain's office. He says, he picks up a piece of paper. He said, Hayes, he said, I've got an invitation here. They want you to go to the sportsman of the year dinner. So I said, yes, captain. He said, okay, Hayes, you can go. So I said, thank you, captain. And I turned around and I walked out. And as I got to the door, he said, Hayes, so I turned around. He said, Hayes, wear your civilian clothes because you're a bloody disgrace to the <laughs> army. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no more 10 years of school and no more 10 years in the army for you. <laughs> you, had, you had no choice but to become a golfer. Of all those great players you talked about, Dale, and the things in the you see, you talked about Nicholas's concentration and so beautiful hands and wonderful flair and all those sorts of things. How much of that are you born with and how much can you learn, do you think? You've seen them up close. Is it a gift? Was Nicholas's concentration a gift? Which is not to say he didn't work at it and improve it, but can you learn what Nicholas I, had?
1: I think a lot of it you're born with. Mm. I think you can learn, no question about that. Mm. But I think when, I, when I, look at, I look at Nicholas's concentration, he was born with that. Gary Player's determination, mm-hmm. born with that. Uh, Arnold Palmer's passion, Born with that, uh, Bobby Jones's integrity. Born with that, mm-hmm. Semi <laughs> Ballesteros's imagination. He was born with that, yes. you know. Um, so yes, certainly there are things you can learn, but again, it gets down to learning the things that you're not born with.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, so so Nicholas, you know, probably had to learn certain things in the golf swing. He was fortunate enough to have a coach from a young age, same as Tiger had a coach from a young age. Arnold Palmer had his father. Gary Player, when he started, had his father-in-law mm-hmm. Jack Vervey, who helped him. Um, the yes. earlier, earlier players, it was far more difficult for them. You know, today, if anybody's got talent, straight away they're put into some sort of academy and they start getting coached by top coaches. But you know, you go back to Peter Thompson, and you, I mean, there was one of the most simple golf strings you could ever imagine. Now, who taught Peter Thompson to
0: do that? Mm-hmm. Tomson. You know, it's, it's quite <laughs> incredible. I mean, yeah. that
1: is just pure natural talent, isn't it? Yeah. You yeah. know, nobody was there to tell him that's how you've got to swing the club. You know, Bobby Locke, Bobby Jones, uh, Ben Hogan. I mean, Ben Hogan, you know, he learned it all in the dirt, yeah. didn't he? Just practiced and practiced and practiced until he discovered how to hit a golf ball straight. You know, but then again, Sam Steed was born with that magnificent golf mm-hmm. swing. So, yes, you're born with some things and I think some things you have to
0: learn. Yeah. Yeah. It's a a funny old game, isn't it? As I said, it's so multidimensional that the 300-yard drive and the three-inch putt count for exactly the same, which brings in the mental side of the game. Because if you can hit it 300 yards and miss from three feet, nothing would drive you madder. It's an extraordinary game, isn't it? It's an extraordinary series of questions it asks.
1: Well, you know, the, the thing about golf is, and, you know, this is where the distance thing becomes quite interesting is you know, par fours, it's going to take you two shots to reach. Mm-hmm. Par fives, it's going to take you two and a half shots to reach. Mm-hmm. Okay, because you're not going to hit every par five in two, mm-hmm. so it's going to take you two and a half shots. Par threes, I'll take you one shot. So that's a given. Okay, what's not a given then is is the the shots around the green. You know, if you do miss a green, you know, putts aren't a given. You know, so then it gets down to who holds the putts, which obviously also depends on. How close you hit the iron shots. Right. Yeah. But you know, who holds those putts? And and you know, you can get a you can have a day where you hit your iron shots all very close and just don't make a putt. You can have a day where you hit them 30 foot and make three thirty footers, you know, and chip in on one hole and the next thing you've shot a 66. Yeah. So, you know, it's such it's such a complicated game. And it's different all the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember one of my favorite lines ever about putting was all putts are a 50-50 proposition. They're either going to go in or they're not. that's <laughs> absolutely that's crazy. right. From fifty feet, that's why right, yeah. it, it's 50-50. Nowadays,
1: I've, <laughs> I've got the chipping yips. Okay? I can't chip, so I chip with a hybrid. Uh-huh. Okay, but I can still putt. You know, my putting's still see, still, and it's always been because when I get over a putt, it's it, either I can sink it or it's going to miss.
0: Yeah.
1: It's as simple as that. So I get up and hit it. And it's, now with chipping, it's not that simple. No, you know, it's Because not. chipping, you know, <laughs> either I'm going to duff it, or I'm going to hit it thin, or it's going to
0: go in the bunker. Uh, go- yeah, absolutely, <laughs> Dale. I've just had a look at how long we've been talking for, which is crazy, but it's been fantastic to catch up with you. Uh, we look forward to hearing you on the television again. You mentioned that you, you, you saw, and I know that you, you send out some golf newsletters. You send them to me. There's an awful lot of work in that. What do you? Why do you do that? What's that about? What's that? What what else do you do? Obviously, we know that you only played for the sort of the ten years, but you've been in golf all the time. We know that you're on TV, but this leaves a lot of the year that we don't know what you're up to. What are these other ventures?
1: Well, we As I say, our family we own the, we own a golf club.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we you know right now I'm in, in my office at the golf club, and uh, my son my son works here. My oh. ex wife works here. Fabulous. My current wife works here. <laughs> right. Um, my about, brother probably works another here. hour and a yeah, half you, in
0: that yeah. bar, but we won't go down that road.
1: <laughs> no, you, you've got to have courage in life, eh? You've got to have courage. You've got to make sure that your alimony and your salaries yeah. is the same thing.
0: <laughs> You're a brave, brave man, is what I would say. Yes.
1: <laughs> Wonderful stuff. So I keep busy, but the, the newsletter is just, you know, it's something we started to do years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, my, my wife and I do it. And, and, you know, it's just something that has become very popular in South Africa. Wonderful. You know, it's a way that people can spend five minutes on a Monday morning or ten minutes on a Monday morning and catch up with what's happening from a South African point of view mm-hmm. to to our players around the world. Yeah, you know, whether it's amateur golf, professional golf, whatever it is, with a little bit of other news. Yep. So uh, you know, we've been we've been doing it for eight or ten years, okay. and uh, we we enjoy doing it, and people enjoy getting it. So we just keep doing it.
0: This game and the future of this game, Dale, relies on people with passion. And you're one of those people. And talking to you, that shines through. For that, we, the game, thank you. And for your time today, I thank you. It's been wonderful to catch up. Really appreciate you doing it.
1: Thank you very much, Rod. I appreciate you allowing me to be on. And uh, anything you ever need in South Africa, just get in touch with me and try
0: to help you. What an intriguing and charming character. And what a passion for the game. I hope that you, like me, have enjoyed discovering a bit more about what has been a fascinating life. And if you are anything like me, you can't help but wonder what might have been for Dale and the golf world, if not for the apartheid regime. Well, that's it for episode 24 of the show, but I hope you've made the effort to subscribe because on episode 25, we're going to meet a player who is the very epitome of a humble champion.
1: I do look back at some of those times, particularly early in my career, and I wish I believed I was as good as I was
0: playing. That's two-time Australian Open winner Greg Chalmers next time on The Thing About Golf.